Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. As we turn to the Word, I would ask that you turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Two weeks ago, we began a short series on unity within the church. We finished our exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are preparing uh, a bit later here in August to uh, begin going through Genesis. Um, but I wanted to take just a, a few weeks here in between to address a topic that, that I believe is a vital theme throughout the New Testament. I, I will reiterate here uh, that I'm not going through this because uh, of some outward division within the church that I'm aware of. I'm not aware of any, but, but as we're going to see in this text today in James chapter 4, we should assume division and disunity to be the norm rather than the exception. And so... While there is not division and disunity and discord and, and all of the other disses, it's the opportune time to discuss these things so that we'll be prepared if and when those things do arise. Unity is what Jesus prayed for on the night that he was arrested as he gathered together with his disciples. It's what Paul charged the churches to strive for even while he himself was imprisoned. Yes, the church has important work to do. Yes, we are commissioned to share the gospel to the ends of the earth with all peoples. To do any number of good and holy activities that accompany our calling as believers. But we can only do those things effectively if unity exists within the body. And if it does not, then we will be paralyzed when it comes to accomplishing our primary mission when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission. Unfortunately, unity is not something that occurs naturally within a church. It's something we have to work for, that we have to actively pursue. Sure, there may be some natural affection that exists between individuals, certain people that we easily connect with. But often the factors that would naturally divide us in a worldly setting, things like our age, Things like our race, our gender, our income, our hobbies, our political affiliations. All of those things would work to undermine any natural affection that might exist between the people within a church. True unity can only exist based on a common shared something that is greater than all of those things. And we said a couple of weeks ago that 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 shared something must be our shared commitment to the gospel and our shared experience of, a, of gospel transformation in our own lives, our own submission to the Word of God. Therefore, we emphasize the fact that what unifies us and what unites us is not just warm feelings and affection toward one another, but the very blood of Jesus shed for forgiveness of sins that has washed me and has washed you and allows us to now call one another brother and sister because we share the same Father. It is God dwelling in us 
enabling us to walk worthy of our calling. That is what unites us. And these are things that I admit I have to remind myself of regularly. Because we live in a world, and I'm susceptible to this, that is very self-focused. And it's easy for us to become self-focused as well. But the kind of unity that is expected by Jesus and described by Paul is a willingness to be unselfish, to be humble, to seek the good and well-being of others ahead of ourselves. And so this week we're going to look at the second big question that comes along. Last time we looked at what unifies us. Today we're going to begin looking at where where does disunity come, come from? What divides us? Just like two weeks ago, there are any number of texts and instructions and just general observations that we could consider here. Certainly the answers to that question could be endless. Could include anything from fighting over the color of the carpet to politics to scandalous affair. And so then understand that what I say today about what divides us, where disunity comes from, it's not meant to be exhaustive. I will not try to list every possible thing that might cause division within a church. But I I do want to highlight how Scripture itself answers this question here in the book of James. So therefore, today we'll consider a brief exposition of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, where we will see James explain two major causes for disunity. And so I humbly ask that if you are able that you would stand together this morning in honor of the reading of the Word of God. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. There James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that that he has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And once more, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, today we come before you seeking the humility that James writes about here. 
Humility toward you. Humility when it comes to our disordered desires, our worldly passions. Humility when it comes to the law, your word. Lord, I pray that even now we would cease and desist from being judges of the law of your word. And rather, allow your word to penetrate and purify our hearts. Help us to be doers of your word. And in being doers of of your word, help us to use this passage to examine our own hearts, to examine our own lives, to, to seek out and stamp out any cause for disunity and to put into practice the things that we are commanded to do. Even as we realize all the more deeply that it is all of your grace that allows us to do this. You give us more grace, O God. And we are thankful for that grace and ask that right now you dispense it freely to help us understand and to apply your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, James, who writes this letter, comes right out and asks the very question that we want to know the answer to this morning. Where do wars and fights come from among you? What is the source of disunity? Now, notice the assumption that's implicit here in this question. James doesn't ask the church, do wars and fights exist among you? No, that question would be silly. Of course they do. Of course they exist. And so he's asking, where do they come from? This question would, it's a lot like whenever you gather your children, they don't ask you, are we planning on eating dinner tonight? No, our children always want to know, what's for dinner? What are we eating? Right? They know and understand that in our house, chances are good we're going to be eating dinner. So they don't have to ask, are we eating dinner tonight? They want to know, what's for dinner? James doesn't need to ask, are there wars and fights among you? He says, where do they come from? Where do they come from? He's assuming that they exist. And so we would be foolish to think that wars and fights do not exist in any form among us. Now, they may not be front and center. As I said, I'm not aware of any outward open conflict within this body. We may not have people standing up and yelling at one another, getting into physical altercations, taking each other to court like they did right here in the 1920s in this very church. But do not be deceived by the calm above the surface. Because it is likely that in a body of believers where many of you all have known each other for decades, that there are some cold wars that exist, unseen, unknown to most, beneath the surface, but fueling bitter resentment. And these wars, I would submit, are a hundred times deadlier to the life of a church than those that exist out in the open. Because at least the ones out in the open can be dealt with. We can sit down together and and call one another toward reconciliation. But the ones that remain in secret, the grudges, the resentments that's been held for so long, you can't even really remember how they began. Those things work like poison. Poison. Creating factions, driving wedges, preventing worship by grieving the Holy Spirit and hindering the work of Christ, the essential work of taking the gospel to the nations that we are called to do. 
Those grudges, those resentments can paralyze a church. And so either way, in open or in secret, wars likely exist. They've existed in every church from the time that James wrote this letter until the time when Jesus will return. And our job is to find the source of those conflicts and to stamp it out. To strive for Christian unity. The church that does so will not only survive, but will thrive. As we are all pulling in the same direction, unified together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the mission that he's called us to. The answer that James provides to this question, though, is somewhat simple. He says, where do wars come from? Where does fighting come from among you? First, he says, they come from your disordered desires. Now, we all want certain things out of life, in life. We all probably want a degree of money that would allow us to live comfortably. We all probably want a peaceful home. We all want honor and respect from those around us. We all want prestige, a suitable spouse, a suitable spouse to parent and raise our children, submissive children. Teenagers, you may want respect and autonomy from your parents. Some people may want a full sanctuary here on Sunday mornings. You may want a full bank account. You may want a hundred likes on your Facebook post. You may want sexual gratification and on and on and on the list may go for all the things that we want. And our wants don't even necessarily have to be bad things. We can sometimes desire good things in a way that turns that good thing into an idol because we want that good thing supremely. And so that is why we will never exhaust the causes of conflict. Because we are limited only by our own imaginations for all the things that we want. And James says, this is what you fight over. You fight over your desires, your passions, the things that you want. That have gotten disordered. They've gotten out of whack. And because of these desires, whatever they may be, James says we will lust, we will murder, we will covet, we will fight. And we'll even foolishly ask the Lord to give us our idols. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. We have the audacity to stamp our sin, our covetousness with piety, thinking that we're pulling a fast one because if I can pray for it, it must not be a bad thing, right? Well, not according to James because he says, oh yeah, you ask for these things, you pray for these things, but you're not going to get them because you're asking Wrongly, you're asking in order to satisfy your pleasures, your disordered desires. And so such selfish, idolatrous desire produces something in us. When we have these disordered desires, when we're looking for the wrong things in the wrong places, or even the right things in the wrong way, to the wrong degree, James says it's going to produce in us friendship with the world. When we develop these selfish desires, we are declaring that this thing, this object, or this thing that I'm striving for, whatever it may be, it is more precious to me than my relationship with you. I want this thing. I want this respect, this honor, this dignity, this relationship, whatever it might be. I want this thing and I want it more than I want to be in right relationship with you. Because when you threaten my object of desire, when, when 
you tell me that I don't really need it. Or when you withhold it from me or stand in my way of pursuing it, I'm going to get angry with you. I'm not going to like you very much. Now, I may not physically fight you. I try to make it a policy to not physically fight anybody because I'm not bigger than most people. But I learned that when my brother outgrew me in about the the seventh grade. He, He was my baby brother and soon he became my big brother. And at that point, I said, I guess my fighting days are done. But there's a lot of other ways that fights can occur beyond just physical altercations. I can begin to resent you. I can begin to despise you. I can allow my growing hatred of you, which Jesus, by the way, says is what? It's murder. I can kill you a thousand times in my mind when you get in the way of the things that I want. Or if you have the thing that I want, I'll simply sit back and see. I'll covet that which you have because I want it to. Notice all the commandments that James says we're breaking here just because our desires are disordered, because we want things. We'll covet, murder, lie, steal, all these things because of our disordered desires. How many of us have coveted marriage when we were not married? How many of us have coveted compliant children when our own children were being rebellious? How many of us have coveted children, period, when you're Friends, all are having babies and it seems that God has closed your womb. Now listen, all of those things, it's not wrong to want such things. God has told us in His Word that those things, among others, are good. But where they become disordered, where they become wrong, is when you say, I must have this. And if God doesn't give me this, if if my brothers and sisters in church have this and, and I don't have it, then I'm going to begin to resent them. That is where that desire becomes disordered. When I say I'm going to withdraw because I'm consumed by jealousy, by anger, they don't deserve to have that. I ought to be the one to enjoy that. When you begin to demean because you don't think that they are deserving, that's where our desires become disordered. That type of behavior is exactly what James is talking about here. And it's the end, its end result is warfare, disunity within the church. It can start simply with simply saying, I want. And those two little words, I want, can eventually shipwreck a church if we don't keep them in check. As we pursue these things, James says we actually become enemies of God. As we pursue the I wants in our life. Now, these are strong words. These are strong words. Because James is showing us here that to have disordered desires, to have wrong wants, wrongful lusts, wrongful passions, he says it not only creates division between you and me, there's a horizontal break that takes place. Our relationship is going to be destroyed because of my selfish desires, because of your selfish desires. There's also a vertical break that takes place. He says, you not only become enemies of one another, you become an enemy of God because of your disordered desires. And so when our desire for worldly goods or worldly pleasures becomes so strong that we no longer care what God's Word says about it, we become His enemy. Man, how big of a problem those two little words, I want, can create. 
in the church, in our families, in our own personal lives. And so what's the cure? How do we address this problem in our lives? What's the cure for disordered desires? I want you to look with me at verse 6 because verse 6 contains the key. You see, James is going to give us several practical steps here that we can take. I've, I've kind of condensed them down into three steps because isn't that what Baptist preachers do? But before James gets into the practical steps that we can take, verse 6 is so very important. He says there in verse 6, but he gives more grace. This is the key to to getting our disordered desires back in line with God and His Word, to, to lining up what we want with what God wants. He gives more grace. Before we start looking at these practical steps to, to overcoming this, we just need to understand that it all starts right here. Because apart from the grace of God, there is no cure for our disordered desires. There is no cure for our disunity. But, James says, God gives more grace. God gives more grace than your disordered desires. And this is important. Listen, remember who's writing this letter. James was the brother of Jesus. James himself was a recipient of that more grace. James was not a follower of Jesus. Until after Jesus' resurrection. As a matter of fact, at one point, when Jesus returns home, his brothers, including James, was trying to get Jesus to go to Jerusalem because they knew that the the Pharisees were seeking to kill him. And so they said, oh yeah, Jesus, why don't you go on up to the feast? Go on up to Jerusalem. At one point, James' disordered desires included a death wish for his own brother, for Jesus. And so when James says, but he gives more grace, he knows exactly how much more grace God gives. And so no matter how disordered your desires become, God's grace is greater than your disordered desires. Do you desire drugs, alcohol, substances that that can numb the pain, can give you a euphoric state of mind? Do you desire an affair with a coworker, internet pornography? Do you have homosexual desires, a gluttonous desire, a desire to gossip and spread malicious rumors, a gluttonous desire for food, a vainglorious desire for looks, a greedy desire for homes and cars and inflated bank accounts? Whatever your disordered desire may be, the good news is He gives more grace. God's grace is sufficient to overcome your disordered desires. And so how do we see this manifested? Well, first, James says here, draw near to God. Now, several of these things he repeats and includes uh, uh, different ways of restating them. In verse 7 he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. That's the very first thing, but... But I've kind of condensed these down again to three big main ideas. First, draw near to God. Our hearts are always going to struggle with yearning for the things of the world because we remain fighting, battling our flesh. We have to put those desires to death. And the way that we do that is to draw near to God. 
our hearts are always going to be antagonistic toward God until our hearts are transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so we must surrender our lives in humble submission, becoming living sacrifices for the Lord. And we need to realize we will never be truly satisfied. We will never be truly gratified, even in pursuing these disordered desires. Even if we were able to achieve them, it's never going to be enough. We're never going to be fully satisfied. We're never going to be anything but enemies of God. We're never going to have anything but disordered desires until we draw near to God. Until we experience His more grace. And the only way we can do this is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. And so He has made a way for us to draw near by His atoning work on the cross. Through shedding His blood to pay for our disordered desires. That's why He's the only hope of transforming those desires. Because He's the one that's paid for them. He's the one who took them upon Himself to endure God's wrath for them. Do you understand? Your disordered desires deserve God's wrath. They deserve the fury of a high and holy God. Because He has made you for Himself. And He has made you so that you could enjoy His goodness forever. And we say, God, I see that. I understand that you want me to enjoy you and enjoy your goodness and enjoy the good things that you provide. But instead, I want this little trinket, this little doodad, this illicit relationship, this thing that you have said is sinful. Do you start to see how our disordered desires are such an affront to God? God says, I want to give you everything. You say, no thanks, I'll take this instead. That's why Jesus had to die for our disordered desires. And He enables us through His death to draw close to God, to be in right relationship with Him. And so if there is disordered desires, if there is disunity in the church, the, first, the very first question we need to ask ourselves is, do I know Christ? Have I drawn near to God through Jesus Christ? Am I saved? See, the, closely, the, the more closely we are walking with the Lord, the more closely our desires will align with His desires. God wants you to be completely satisfied and filled with joy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came so that you could be satisfied, so that you could enjoy the good things that He provides, namely Himself. But when our desires become disordered, we want things that are contrary to God's will. And it makes us His enemy so that we are cut off from the very source of joy and delight. God gives more grace. And it comes through Jesus Christ, making a way for us to draw near to God. But second, not only must we draw near to God, James tells us that we must also resist the devil. Because the devil will happily whisper in your ear about all the things that you need. He'll happily remind you of all the things that you don't have. And he'll remind you also of the things that your neighbor has that you should be wanting as you drive down the road and you see the new car parked in his driveway. You see the renovations they've done to their home. 
And Satan will tell you, you ought to have that too. Resist him, James says, and he will flee. Satan's goal is to disorder your desires. It's what he did to Adam and Eve. Think back in the garden. He told them that the very thing that God had forbidden them to participate in was the thing that would make them happy. And he's doing the exact same thing today. His his tactics haven't changed a bit from the very first man and woman till now. He's telling you that the very thing that God has forbidden, that's the thing that you should pursue because it's going to make you happy. Young men and young women, you need to understand this because Satan is seeking to devour you. And he will tell you, yeah, sure, God says that Marriage between a man and a woman, that's the pathway to happiness and fulfillment. But I tell you, Satan will say, just go for whatever you want. You don't have to be married. doesn't even have to be a man or a woman. Pursue whatever you want. Ignore God's Word. No, the interesting thing is that the world actually sees this and understands this. Study after study will tell us that faithful Marriage between a man and a woman leads to higher rates of satisfaction and happiness. And yet Satan tells us to reject that. To be promiscuous. To find as many partners as possible. To forget even the structures of marriage, of gender. Those things are far too restrictive. And what do we see as a result of this? We see widespread misery and suicide and depression Amongst our youngest generations. Satan is disordering their desires because he wants them, he wants us to be an enemy of God. And so we must resist him. Because God gives more grace. And as we resist the devil, God's grace causes him to flee and enables us to pursue holiness and righteousness through Christ Jesus. The third cure that we see here in James for disordered desires is to be humble. Again, this comes up multiple times throughout this text. Humility is the cure for worldliness because humility says, I don't actually need all those things. Just give me Jesus and I'll be content. Humility says, I must decrease while Christ must increase. Humility says, I want my brothers and sisters to experience joy. So I'm going to spend my life serving others. Ironically, when we do that, when we put others first, when we we humble ourselves, we find that we will experience joy, greater joy than we could ever imagine. But James doesn't end there. He gives us these cures by the grace of God to draw near to God, by the grace of God to resist the devil, by the grace of God to humble ourselves. Because again, this isn't something that occurs naturally within us. But here in verses 11 and 12 then, he gives us one more cause of disunity. He answers this question another way. Where do wars and fights come from among you? He presses further. He wants us, he says, to not speak evil of one another. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Because this is a source of conflict, a source of disunity. Because he says, when you do that, when you speak evil of your brother, you're judging them. And James says, there's only one judge. 
So when you speak evil of your brother or sister, you are sinfully putting your place, you're sinfully putting yourself in the place of God in order to judge them. You're saying that I have the right to look down on them because they are beneath me. Now, here we might be tempted to try to wiggle off the hook a little bit by saying, well, surely I don't speak evil against other people. That sounds really bad. Yeah, sure, I may burn up the phone line showing my opinion about someone. I may send texts. Did you see what they were wearing today? My goodness. We may let other people know how silly we think the other person is for doing this or that, but I'm not speaking evil of that person. But the original Greek that James uses is actually not quite as strong as we might suspect. It literally translates to down-talking. James says, do not down-talk one another. Now, there's a big difference, I think, in, in our minds between speaking evil against someone right, and just down-talking. And James says it's actually the down-talking that's going to get us in trouble. So the second cause for disunity is down-talking. Brothers and sisters, I fear that we often shoot ourselves in the foot as a church by down-talking one another. How often have you had your feelings hurt because you found out that someone said something about you? How many times have you been embarrassed because someone found out what you said about them? And yet... Many of us will leave here today and before we get home, we will down-talk another brother or sister in Christ. We often have the the best of intentions. Because after all, we need to to share relevant news about someone. My husband, my wife, needs to know this about so-and-so. We need to get our spouse's thoughts on this or that situation. We need to have a a good, innocent laugh at so-and-so because what they did was just so ridiculous. We need to pray for them, right? We're just sharing prayer requests. The reality is, we need none of those things, at least not gossipy prayer requests. We need unity within the church. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what He said we need. That's what Paul commanded the churches. That's what He said we need. That's what James is telling us here, to make sure that we're not doing these things because they threaten the unity of the church. And unity cannot happen when even in the privacy of our own homes, we are down-talking other people. You can't down-talk someone without someone else present. And so you're dragging someone else into your sin as well. You're dragging your children into your sin because guess what? They hear you making fun of that person. They know your true thoughts. They, They go to church and they see you shaking hands with them and smiling at them and patting them on the back and then they hear you around your lunch table down-talking them. And they're learning hypocrisy. They're learning disunity. And so it repeats itself generation after generation after generation. Words carry consequences. And when we speak negatively about someone, it demeans that person in our own minds. And so we see them as a person, but not entirely on our level. That's what happens when we become a judge of them, like James says. We see them as, as another person, but, but we're a little bit above them. And so we're going to judge them. We're going to down-talk them. We're going to demean them. And so the seeds of division are sown. So how do we avoid this? 
Well, I've included some questions here in your notes. I'm not going to elaborate on all of these. I'm just going to simply give them to you because I think these would be helpful for us to ask and analyze ourselves in conversation whenever someone else's name comes up. And if we all commit to doing this, then if someone comes alongside us and they start to downtalk someone else, we might just say, listen, let's ask ourselves this question. And you could use any of these questions, all of these questions. I think they're helpful in preventing this. First, when you find yourself talking about someone with another person, ask yourself, have I, have I already had this conversation with the person about whom we're talking? And would that person be okay with me sharing this information or discussing them with this third person? Usually, we haven't had a conversation with the first person, and they wouldn't be okay with us using their name and having this conversation with someone else, so we shouldn't be doing it. Second, we might ask, there might be a legitimate situation where someone has committed a sin or made a poor decision and I'm actively trying to help them and I simply need counsel. I'm asking someone for, for advice, for wisdom. We're not down-talking them. Is that the case? I think this is rare. It shouldn't be rare. We should pursue this more often. Third, how will this conversation help How will this conversation help the situation? Will it promote unity? Will it elevate the other person in our minds? Or are we just blowing off steam, having a good laugh at their expense? And finally, why are we talking about this right now? This is a good question for for any conversation. Why are we talking about this right now? Is this bringing glory to God? Is this loving our neighbor? Why are we talking about this? Young people especially... If you will guard your conversations by these rules, I guarantee you that you will make and keep more friends. Because you will be seen as someone who is trustworthy, someone who doesn't go behind other people's backs. Sadly though, when we perceive weakness in someone, we treat them like a school of piranhas treats a person with a cut in the water. We devour them. We downtalk other people in private, and text messages. It's a source of destructive disunity within the church. And it diminishes our brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellow image bearers for whom Jesus Christ died and shed His blood. That person that you're talking about, that person that you're down talking, Jesus loved them so much that He was willing to die for them. And now you have the audacity to down talk them, to speak evil against them, to make fun of them. Resolve right now that such things will not be tolerated in your presence. And you will become a force for unity within your home, your workplace, your school, young people, and your church. Now I'll admit these things are difficult. Disordered desires and down-talking, they're so common to us that most of us don't even recognize when we're doing them anymore. That's why we cannot fix these problems on our own. That's why verse 6 is so important because God gives more grace. Try as we might, we will find that our desires keep getting out of line, keep getting out of order. Our speech slips into down-talking too easily. The only hope we have is through the transforming power of Jesus Christ and His sacrificial atoning death, through the more grace that God provides to us. And so do you understand Church, that Jesus died for your down-talking. 
Jesus had to shed His blood for your disordered desires. He had to because if He didn't, your comments you make about your brother or sister would send you to hell. Your disordered desires would send you to hell. Those things make you an enemy of God, James says. Yet, Jesus died for us while we were enemies. While we were still sinners. So we could be transformed from enemies into family. If you today remain, and you recognize that you remain an enemy of God because of your disordered desires, that you have not yet submitted to Christ, then today I would encourage you to come in just a moment and let me know that you'd like to have a conversation about how you can take your disordered desires and experience the grace of God that transforms them into holy and righteous desires. If you need to repent of your habit of down-talking, then in just a minute I would encourage you to come and kneel and confess to the Father that you have down-talked His precious children and ask His forgiveness. Ask Him to make you a force for unity within this church, within your home. If you are ready to be united to this church, to this church family through membership, I'll confess to you we're not perfect. James doesn't assume he's writing a letter to a perfect church. But together we are striving for unity. And we would love to do that together, linking arms with you. Come and let your intentions be known today. As we pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that it contains. Of more grace, more grace given to us by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. More grace to cover our disordered desires. More grace to cover our down-talking. And Lord, as we experience that grace, more and more each day as we need it, that You would put an end to disunity. That You would realign our disordered desires. That You would restrain our tongues from down-talking. That You would remind us of these questions that help prevent us from saying nasty things about one another. From having a laugh at one another's expense. Lord, by your grace, make us more and more like Jesus. And give us the unity that he prayed for. That we would be one. Even as you and he are one. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.